But you can have a look at that. Let me pray. Father, I'd want to pray to the praise of your glory and to the praise of your mercy and grace. And that who you are and your mercy and your kindness and goodness and who you are to us as Father would come through and speak to the hearts of your children, to the praise of your glory, your mercy and grace. In Jesus, amen. Well, a few weeks ago now, uh, a few weeks, well, we'll just let them, let them just come in the back there. A, a few weeks ago now, you might remember that I spent an entire sermon on one, ver- on one verse. It was Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. Let me see if I've got it up there. Now, uh, Colossians chapter 4 verse 2, which from the Greek says, continue in prayer, being watchful and thankful. Some of you might remember that. This morning, I want to take the whole passage as a unit. Colossians 4 from verses 2 to 6 with a significant focus on verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. If you've got your Bible open, I want you to have a look at it. It will come up on the screen. Let me show you how the passage sort of fits and flows together as a particular unit. So if you look at verse 2, it says devote or continue in prayer. You look at verse 3, Paul says, and pray for us too that we may proclaim. Then verse 4, pray that I might proclaim it. And you'll notice the theme there is prayer, right? Obviously. And, and that's what I'm going to be calling gospel praying to the Father. Gospel praying to the Father. But then as you go into verse 5, it says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. This is talking about gospel living, gospel living before others. And then in verse 6, let your conversation with others be full of grace, seasoned with salt. And I'm calling this gospel talking with others. So sort of I pull the whole passage together. There's my title for you. It's praying, living, talking the gospel. Praying, living, talking the gospel. Here's my first heading. Gospel praying to the Father. I'm going to be fairly brief on this point because I did look at it a couple of weeks ago. But Paul says, devote or continue in prayer, being watchful and thankful. Faith in the gospel, faith in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, faith in the gospel, in the Jesus who then fills you with his spirit, he brings you into an intimate, personal relationship with the Father as Abba. You now as a Christian, you have, you, you have the privilege to talk to God as Father, as, as, as Abba, all of the time. And, and when we're talking to the Father, it means that all of our lives are wrapped up in the gospel. It, it, to put it this way, when we're talking to the Father, we're, we're, talking about, we're talking about the gospel. We're talking to Him about how the gospel is wrapped in and through our lives. So when Paul says, pray and be watchful, what Paul is saying is this, in prayer, be watchful 
to how the Father is working out the gospel in your life. Take a look at this in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 verse 12, halfway through. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you. It is God who works the gospel in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His gospel purposes. I want to give you a picture of prayer. And uh, if you could sort of get me out of the way there for a moment. This, this, is, this is an iconic picture. Some of you might recognize it. It was taken in October 1963, and you'll recognize John F. Kennedy in the picture. Ironically, it was a month after this photo was taken that he was assassinated. But as you look at the picture, you'll notice that JFK is there, but, but unbeknown to him, you'll see in the, in the footwell at the bottom, his son, John Jr., had sort of crawled in there and is peering through the secret panel. This captures one of one of those moments, it's a fleeting moment of intimate access that John Jr. had with JFK. But if we have come to know the Heavenly Father through the gospel of Jesus, we have a greater confidence and a greater access to the cosmic heavenly oval office in prayer all of the time. A scripture that has really impacted my heart and my life in this last little while is Hebrews 4 verse 16 where we are told to come, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. I wonder if you understand, if you understand that as a, as a child of the Father that His heart towards you is always one of grace. Always one of grace. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. It doesn't, it, it, even, even the sin that so engulfs and the stumbles and the falls, it is always a throne of grace. And we can run to Him. But I want to give you a second picture of prayer. And uh, this one, this one might be a little bit less familiar. It was, uh, it was done by Gustav Dore. And it was his particular depiction of the struggle. Do you know who that might be? It's Jacob, isn't it? Jacob wrestling with God or wrestling with the angel of God. This is his, his particular visual of it. And um, this, this is Jacob wrestling with, with the angel of God in Genesis chapter 32. And here's the thing. But if you go back to Genesis chapter 32 and you, and you ask yourself, why? why was Jacob in such turmoil? Why was he in need of wrestling with God all night? You remember that. It was because of his what? It was because of his fear. He was afraid. He was about to meet Esau the next day and he was afraid that Esau might hurt him. He was afraid that Esau might hurt his family and so he wrestled all night with God. He had fled, you remember, from Esau many, many years ago. As God's children, we are often like Jacob, aren't we? We can be full of fear. Fear of people. Fear of the future. Fear of the unknown. Fear of. See, prayer to the Father 
is where we continue to wrestle our fears before Him, our troubles before Him, our challenges before Him, our difficulties before Him. We wrestle our hearts before Him. Because we have a Father who says, cast all your fear and your anxieties onto me because I care for you. I just want to encourage you this morning that you might run to your Father again and again with everything on your heart, with all your hopes, with all your fears, with all your disappointments, with all your sin, with all your anxieties, with all your failures, because He cares for you. And it's an oval office of grace. It's an oval office that is always open and it's grace. There's a gospel praying to the Father that then leads to a gospel praying to the Father for others. For others. Have a look at Colossians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. He says, Now, Notice the shift. It's praying. You continue to pray too. But now Paul says, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message that we might proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I might proclaim it as clearly as I should. Here is Paul. Paul is in jail. Colossians 4 verse 3. He's in jail and he's asking the Christians in Colossae to pray for him. Now, as I ask you this question, there's a little risk, but I'm going to take the risk. If I was put in jail as one of your pastors for preaching the gospel, I wonder how you would respond. I wonder how you would pray for me. I hope you'd be concerned. I hope you wouldn't say, well, he deserved to be in jail. So I, I, I really hope that you'd pray for me. When, when the Colossians heard that Paul was in jail, they, they panicked. They panicked. And, and, and the sort of thoughts, comments, and prayers went something like this. Surely Paul in jail is a mistake. Surely he doesn't deserve it. What's going to happen to us? If you went into Philemon verse 23, we actually discover that Epaphras was actually a co-prisoner with Paul. Epaphras was the guy that started the church. In jail with Paul is Epaphras. In jail with Paul is a guy called Aristarchus, chapter 4, verse 10. The church hears this news about Paul in jail, and, and, and they start saying, well, what's going to happen? Father, what's going to happen to the gospel? What's going to happen to your word? What's going to happen to us? How's the church going to grow? How's the church going to grow without Paul? How are we going to continue if, if Epaphras is in jail with you? Maybe we could turn the question like this. If you were, if you were locked up for preaching the gospel, for proclaiming the good news of Jesus, how would you ask others to pray for you? What would you pray for? Paul says, don't, 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 don't panic. Please pray for us. Please pray for me. Please pray for Epaphras. Please pray for, for, for Aristarchus. But here's what he says. Please pray gospel prayers. Don't make your primary prayers that we get out of here. Don't make your primary prayers that we are released. Pray that God would open a door for the gospel. Pray that I might proclaim the mystery of Christ 
and pray, verse 4, that I would proclaim it as clearly as we should. See, this is gospel praying for Christians who are in difficulty and in persecution. It's not that we... It's not that we don't pray for release. It's not that we don't pray for healing. It's not that we don't pray for a change of circumstances. But gospel praying for Christians is that they might use the circumstances to share the gospel with others. And gospel praying is praying that Christians will endure the trial as a witness to Christ. I want you to be honest for just a moment. When you are praying for someone, especially a loved one, a beloved Christian, and they're hurting, they're difficult, it's sick, it's, it's bad, what's your number one prayer? Honestly, what's your number one prayer? Usually. Lord, heal. That's how we pray. Lord, heal. Lord, fix. Lord, take it away. Lord, change. Lord, release. Now, there's, there's nothing wrong with praying like that. But it's not primary gospel praying, if I may put it like that. Paul's in jail. We don't even know what the circumstances were like. How does he pray? Pray that God will open the doors for the message. And pray that I will proclaim it as clearly as I should. Notice if you've got your Bible, verse 3, he says, pray that I may proclaim the mystery of Christ. And you say, well, what's, what's the mystery of Christ? If you went back into chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, the mystery of Christ is actually the indwelling spirit, Christ in you. If you went back to Colossians 2, verse 2 and 3, the mystery is, is the incarnation, uh, God's Son becoming a man. Just a little aside, just this last week, there was, if you've been following the news, there's this big discussion on the news about the Dalai Lama, uh, 87 years old, he's probably going to die at some point, and people are discussing who's going to succeed him. And it's interesting, this most famous monk, this most famous Buddhist monk, people revere him as a God-king. They revere him as a God-man. The mystery of the gospel, or the mystery of Christ, shall I say, the mystery of Christ is essentially the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus, the God-man. And the gospel is so succinctly summarized like this. 2 Timothy 2 verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Colossians, while I'm chained, while I'm chained, pray that there will be open doors to proclaim the mystery of Christ, which is the gospel. You say, open doors for what? To whom? That I can proclaim it? to the other prisoners that are here with us. Can proclaim it to the gods that are in charge of us. And then notice verse 4 again. He says, pray that I will proclaim it with clarity as clearly as I should. By clarity, Paul means not saying things about Jesus that is less than the gospel. Do you hear that? If I'm, going to pray the, if I'm going to preach the gospel with clarity, I don't want to say things about Jesus that is less than the gospel. Let me give you a couple of examples. 
Jesus loves you is true, but it's less than the gospel. For God so loves the world, it's true, but it's less than the gospel. God hates sin, it's true, but it's less than the gospel. You will go to hell unless you believe in Jesus. That's true, but it's less than the gospel. When Paul asks people to pray for him that he has clarity, Paul is asking that he might be able to present the gospel in its fullness. He's not saying, let me preach the whole Bible to everybody. He's saying, let me present the fullness of of the gospel. The type of clarity that Paul was praying for is reflected here in Romans chapter 1 verses 2 to 5. Listen for the gospel clarity, the gospel fullness. It's a gospel, good news, that was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Now if you were to sort of unpack that passage, here's the sort of clarity that you get. The gospel starts where? It starts in the Old Testament. In fact, it goes all the way back to creation. The gospel is about Jesus, God's Son, who became a man. It's the incarnation, who died on the cross from our sins, who was raised from the dead and is Lord of all. And the gospel proclamation is not complete unless we have called people to the obedience that comes from faith. We have called people to repent, turn from following a false God, turn from following a false way, turn to follow Jesus and believe on Him. The gospel proclamation is not complete without a call to repentance and faith. And when when we're talking about proclaiming the gospel with clarity... If we could just step on this a little bit further. I think there are three things that we need to be careful of. I'm going to give you three words. Here's the first thing. The first thing, when when we're preaching gospel clarity, we've got to be careful of experience. What do I mean by that? What I mean is relying solely on a personal testimony or a personal witness. Personal testimonies are absolutely wonderful, but the the danger is is that they can fall short of the gospel. So we've just got to be careful of that. Don't don't share your personal testimony. Just be careful because they can fall short of the gospel. The second thing to be careful of is egocentricism. It's that gospel where you say to people, if you come to Jesus, he will give you... Come to Jesus and He will fix your... Come to Jesus and He will make you... We've got to be very careful of that. And then thirdly, we've got to be careful of expedience. And what I mean by expedience is that we've got to be careful of just trying to get someone to say yes to Jesus as quickly as possible. That we're just trying to get them to, to pray a prayer of commitment and we can say one saved. To use, to quote one preacher, he said, make sure you don't just run the quickie by them to get them to the commitment. We're not, we're not just after commitment. We're not just, 
We're not trying to pacify people's problems. We're not trying to get someone instantly converted. What we are wanting to do is we're wanting to give witness to the fullness of the gospel, to the fullness of the glory of the gospel, to the fullness of the glory of, 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 of who Jesus is. If I can put it this way, we really are wanting to, for people to make, if you like, an intelligent response to the testimony about Jesus Christ. Paul's in jail. And his gospel praying looks like this. Pray that there will be open doors for me to share the mystery of the gospel of Christ. Pray that I will do it as clearly as I should. I don't know whether you ever say this to yourself, maybe, maybe subtly or quietly or whatever, but I think Christians can sometimes say things like, well, you know, if I was only somewhere else, I would share the gospel. If only I had a different job. If only I lived in a different place. If only if I was in a better situation. If, 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 if my circumstances were better. If my, my life wasn't such a mess. Then, if all these things changed, then I would be able to proclaim the gospel. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter the circumstances you are in. That you can ask the Father to open doors and you can ask the Father for the clarity and you can ask others to pray that for you. It doesn't matter whether you live in a retirement village, whether you live in an aged care facility. It doesn't matter whether you live in a flat or whether in a house next to, next to neighbors. It doesn't matter whether you're single, married, divorced, whatever the case may be. God has put people around you that only you can reach. Only you can reach. And that's why they're rare around you. Whether that be at school, whether that be somewhere else, whether that be at water court, wherever it is, it doesn't matter. You can pray, Lord, Lord, open doors. And please, please may I proclaim it clearly as I should. And ask others to do the same. Then there's a gospel living before others. Look at verse 5 with me. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Pretty sure you've heard this quote a number of times in different spaces and places. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Francis of Assisi. Very popular question, Christian quote. There's two problems with it. Number one, Francis of Assisi never said it. Well, we can't verify that he said it. Number two, it's a little bit less than Christian. It's a little bit less than Christian. It's truth. There's truth there. But it's word and deed always go together, don't they? In fact, they should never, ever be separated. How we live is not what saves people. Let me say that again. How we live is not what saves people, but it is how we live that draws people to the gospel. It is, it is how we live, if I can put it this way, lends credibility to the gospel that we say we believe. It lends credibility to the gospel we say that has changed us. 
Here's how Peter put it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. He said, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. The bottom line is this, that we simply undermine the glory of the gospel when we live lives that are consistently out of step with the new life for which Christ bought us. And what that means, if we're going to make, if, if we're going to be wise in the way we, 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 we live among outsiders, it, it's, it, there's a consistency of life. But, but what that also means then is that when we do sin as we do, when we fall as we do, when we stumble as we do, we are very, very quick to go and seek forgiveness for stumbling and falling and sinning. You know, sometimes... Sometimes we, we, can, we can display such ungodly behavior before non-Christians. They might not necessarily get hurt in the process. But then we need to go to those non-Christians and say, I am really sorry that my behavior was not befitting the king that I follow. And I am truly, truly sorry. That is powerful witness. You remember Jesus said, didn't he? Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing in what? Teaching. Teaching them everything I have commanded you. We teach what we live. Christians are not hypocrites. Christians are not hypocrites. We proclaim what we live. I want you to look at verse 5. You've got your Bible open again. Look at verse 5 again. It says, Be wise in the way you, will, you act towards outsiders. And we've got, to, we've got to put this into the context here. All right? So let's put this into the wider context of the passage. And you'll, you'll notice that, 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 that the context starts at 3.15, runs down to 4.1. In other words, the question is, be, be wise in the, the way you, you, you act towards outsiders and so as you look at the context, where, where do we live most of our lives? So notice in 3.15, we live within the body of Christ. Then notice that, that many of us live in, 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 in families, married, husband and wife. We've got, we've got children, uh, 3, uh, 3, 18, 19, 20. And then, and then we, we, we live at work. At where sort of, if we equivalent sort of master and slave to employee, employee. In other words, what, what, what Paul is saying is when you, when you, if you're going to be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, have a very careful look at the relationships that you have. Because the, the, the non-Christian world is watching, it's looking. So, for example, um, Husbands, wives, Christian husbands and wives, look at, look, at, look, at, look at how you're living together. Christian parents, Christian kids, look at how, you, look at how that's going together. Uh, Christian boss, Christian employee, look at, look at those relationships. Are they a witness to Christ? For, for non-Christians that are looking in from the outside, is, is that a witness to Christ? There's this phrase, I'll just paraphrase it from Titus. Titus says this, he says, live such godly lives that adorn the gospel. That, another word for adorn is to dress the gospel. 
Live such godly lives. Live such godly lives in your families. Live such godly lives in your home. Live such godly lives in your parenting. Live such godly lives at work. Live such godly lives on the sports field. Live such godly lives at the gym. Live such godly lives wherever you are. Because in all of those environments, you're rubbing shoulders in one way or another with non-Christians and they're watching, they're looking, and they're either being drawn or they're being repelled by the way that we live. Let me go to the fourth one. I want you to see the flow. See the flow? Continue in intimate prayer to your Father. Just take all of you, all of you, all of you to your Father over and over. But pray to the Father for others and for yourself. Pray that we'll, wherever we are, there are open doors and we'll have clarity. And then take a look at your life. Look at how you live before others so that you can make the most of the opportunity. And then when the opportunity comes, verse 6, we must speak the gospel. We must speak the gospel. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you might know how to answer everyone. When the opportunity arises for you to speak the gospel, it needs to be words seasoned with salt, words full of grace and seasoned with salt. If you have a look back at chapter 3, verse 8, here's a, here's a picture of the unregenerate mouth. Here's the non-Christian mouth. Paul writing to Christians, he says, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Get rid of anger, rage, malice, and slander, and filthy language from your lips. Into verse 9, do not lie to one another. These are, these are characteristic of, of the unregenerate mouth. Let, let your speech be gracious. Make, your, make sure that your, your speech uh, has, a, a, has a habit of graciousness. And here's what Paul is saying. It, no matter what the situation is, whether you're in a stressed situation, whether you're in a difficult situation, when you're in a hurting situation, whether uh, you're, you're wronged, whether you're before a judge, whether it's with your wife, your, your husband, with your child, your neighbor, your boss, your employee, no matter what the circumstances are with the people with whom you are, let your words be full of grace and season with salt. I think it is true to say that many, many Christians don't generally have a habit of swearing, but put them under pressure. And often the swear words come out quite easily, don't they? Let your grace, get your speech be gracious. Paul is referring here to the whole way that we speak as Christians. But in particular, he's talking about the way that we communicate the gospel. Because the gospel is a gospel of grace. It needs to be communicated in a gracious way. Does that make sense? Because it's a gospel of grace, it's got to be communicated in a graciousness. Let me turn it this way. It's so easy to communicate the gospel of grace as a gospel of judgment. 
And I want to give you the most classic, iconic Australian example in recent times, and you'll recognize this. Do you remember that? Do you remember that post? I'm sure all of you are familiar with it. Can you see the problem with it? There is truth in it. There is truth in it. But it's less than the gospel, isn't it? It's less than the gospel. And it is not communicated with grace. It's not communicated with grace. Notice Paul says in the passage, he says, let your words be seasoned with salt. Think about salt. What, what are some of the things that salt does? Well, one of the things that salt does is that when, when you put it into a wound, what happens? It does what? It stings. And then what happens, Bob? It what? <laughs> it hurts. And what happens after that? Well, what does it do while it stings and while it hurts? It heals. It heals. Have a look at that post again. It stings, but it does not heal. It wounds, but does not heal. I can point the fingers at Israel for Lao, but I want to be very personal with you this morning and say to you, I know exactly what that is because I've done it myself. Some of you will remember this. You remember the funeral that I did for a beloved brother here at BBC some months ago, well, even a couple of years ago now. And uh, we're, we're, we're in my attempt at this funeral to, 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 to preach the gospel of grace. I actually shared it in a way that was ungrace. Just this week, I uh, received an email from someone whom I last saw 19 years ago. This couple was, uh, they were in our church back in Durban, 2003. And uh, at the time, they'd been in the church about six years. They were, became really good friends with us in that year. They said that they loved Jesus. They believed Jesus. They seemed to live the gospel. It was all there. And shortly after we left Durban the following year, they both became apostate. They denied the faith. They categorically denied Jesus Christ as Messiah. They became devout Jews and even moved to Israel. That was 19 years ago, 18, 18 years ago. This last Monday, this very last Monday, I received an email from the wife, and I'm going to read it to you. She said, quote, Just thought I would tell you that you were right all those years ago. You warned us. And we didn't listen. Thank you for trying. I know there is no hope. But the reason why she said there was no hope was because of something that I said to her 19 years ago that she never forgot. When she walked away from the faith and denied Christ, I said something to her. And it's reflected in an email that I got, a second email from her, as we've started to converse. Quote, It's already too late. You warned me so many years ago that if we made the decision to convert, we would be lost forever, condemned to hell, and there would be no going back. 
You see, I was so desperate. I was so desperate for them not to walk away from Jesus. I said something in desperation. It wasn't completely untrue. It may well have been well-intentioned at one level. But I said something that gave despair for the heart. And she feels there's no hope. I wounded, but I did not heal. One of my sons made a comment recently, and he said, my dad is known as the person who will tell you straight you are going to hell. It's not something to be proud of. Because that is certainly not the whole gospel. It does not reflect grace and seasoning with salt. If I'm known as that, I have wounded, but I have not healed. So let me start to close. Could you do a little inventory this morning? How's your gospel praying to the Father? Is there a growing intimacy? Throne of grace. Access. Could I just encourage you, my brothers and sisters, again to run to your Father again and again and again and again and again and again because it's the throne of grace. Two, gospel praying to the Father for others or for us. What, 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 what does your gospel praying look like for others? It shouldn't be primarily for health and security. Gospel praying, what does it look like? It, it looks like praying for joy in trial. It looks like perseverance in difficulty. It looks like for greater faith in an uncertain future. It looks like trusting God to provide. And it looks like God opened doors and clarity so that more and more people can be reached with the gospel. Have a look at your, your, your gospel praying this morning. Are you living that gospel? If you've ever asked yourself this, it's a, it might be, might be a hard one to answer, but what do you think non-Christians think of you? What do you think non-Christians think of you? Or maybe even, what do you think other Christians see when they look at your life? Are there, are there some things that have become stumbling blocks or hindrances in, in, in allowing you to share the gospel. They've, they've become blockages that are sort of snuffing out the opportunities that you may have had. Are you taking the opportunities? And when you speak it, 
is it with a mouth full of grace and a mouth that is seasoned with salt? Is the speech humble, kind, gentle, wholesome, building up? When you have the opportunity to speak the gospel, does it wound? And does it heal? Does it wound? And does it heal? May the Lord forgive us. And may the Lord help us. I'm going to ask the music team to join me up front.